Have you ever been on one of those home tours? <clears throat> um, my wife, Kara, and I went on a home tour in the Heights a couple of Christmases ago, I don't know, three or four years ago. There was like six to eight homes that you could enter into. And when you walked into the house, you were met by a docent. A docent is someone who is an expert of whatever they're, they're, they're at. And they would take you room by room through these magnificent historical homes. And each room was decorated uniquely. Some had Santa figurines, some had Christmas trees that were decorated with ornaments that showed the places all around the world that, that they had been. But each one reflected the personality of the holidays of that owner. The sights, smells, it just heightened the Christmas experience. And there were some homes that we were in and we just wanted to stay in there and take in its beauty. But we were limited on our time. There were lots of people. We got just enough of a glimpse of the world of these people to appreciate them and then be appreciative of them for allowing us to come into their homes and share it. But then the tour was over and we had to enter into the next house and then the whole experience was repeated. Each week, examining God's word has been like that Heights Home Tour. Each doctrine that we have gone through, we have been able to peer into like a tour of a different home. We've been able to enter the pages of God's word, enter into the different rooms, examine them, study them, appreciate them, see the beauty of them, be left in awe of God, and even a renewed fear for God in some. Some maybe we wanted to stay in longer, but each has been a magnificent tour. And so we find ourselves in the last two weeks of this tour, dusk has set out as we've left the home last week of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit by our docent Mitch that took us through. But as we hit the street, we make our way to the next home. And as we get to the next home, we're able to peer into the front living room window. And through there, before we even get there, we hear music being played. We see people who are interacting and there are all different colors. There's blacks, there's whites, there's browns, yellow, red. There's the sharing of meals. There's, there's the playing of games. There's just a joy that is echoing through this one home. And as we get close to it, we look, and above the door it says, ecclesia. Ecclesia, the Greek word for church. Ah, the church. The doctrine of the church. This doctrine is about us. This doctrine is about who we are as the church and how we are to behave as the church and how we came to be the church through the sacrificial and victorious work of Jesus. And I got to say, I love the church. I was one of those dudes that was born on a Monday and I was in church on Sunday. Grew up Baptist and I was everything when the church was open, I was there. Sunday school in the morning, training union Sunday night. Any training union people out there? Anybody? Anybody? Royal Ambassadors on Wednesday did the choir. First Baptist Church in Tulia. And I remember, I don't know when it was. There was one day, Brother Charles, he was up there and he was going through awards. And he goes, and Ryan Prater gets one month for perfect attendance here at first, you know, in, in the church. Well, I got this little pin. Had one month. And then I was like, well, that's cool. 
Then I got three months perfect attendance in Sunday school. Then I got my six months perfect attendance. Then I got my one year. Then I got my two year. And then when I graduated as a senior, First Baptist Church Tulia, I had my seven years perfect attendance there in Sunday school. Now when I left First Baptist Church, there was about 350 people in this 5,000 population city, town, village, I don't know what you'd call it. My dad, he's, uh, he's one of the deacons there now. We talk church, we talk a lot of stuff, and asked him about, uh, we always talk about First Baptist Tulia. First Baptist Tulia now is anywhere from 110 to 125 on a Sunday. Now, First Baptist Church Tulia is not the only church in that city declining. That's an that's a epidemic across our country. October 20th, this past year, Houston Chronicle had an article titled, More Americans Have No Religious Affiliation. Here's some statistics from that article. 2009, 77% of American adults described themselves as Christians, as opposed to 17% that said they were atheist, agnostic, or nothing in particular. 2019, I guess this was the 10-year challenge. You see those all over social media, don't you? 2019, 10-year challenge for the church, 66% claimed to be Christian. 26% claim to be atheist, agnostic, or nothing. Do the math, that's a 20% swing. The Pew Research Center, they're the ones who are doing this um, research, they, they count regular attendance at a church coming one time a month. So maybe if I, if I dated you one time a month, would you consider that regular dating? Probably not. But we count that as regular attendance in the church. 2009, 52% who attended a religious service did so regularly, once a month. As opposed to those who only went a few times a year. That was 47%. Now, 10-year challenge, 45% attends once a month. 54% attend only a few times a year. So what does that say, my friends, about the perception and purpose of the church. Why do we even attend? Why get up early on a Sunday morning, come to a church, into a building with people that some you know, some you may not, some you may like, some you may not. We gather, we sing songs, some we know, some we don't. We listen to a dude up front who's preaching from the word, some ancient text that we may or may not believe, and is once a month or a few times a year even sufficient. I don't, I don't know about you, but for me, these numbers are quite disturbing, and they're projected to decline. Now, the article doesn't say why this has happened. It's just happening. And in many quarters, the church is losing or has lost completely its influence on where, it, uh, on where it's at. That's the door of this tour of the home that we're about to enter into. But I just want to walk in. And I want to explore what God's word has to say about his church. So let's allow God's word to tell us who we are and how we came to be the church and what we are to do and then how we are to do it. And then maybe then, maybe then, our perception of the church will change. So will you come in with me? 
for me to help understand things like when I'm looking at doctrine, I, 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 my little small mind, I like to be practical. So I, I got to use the Polar Express to help me out. So we see the Polar Express up there. Polar Express fans, I love it. Right, so I want, to, I want you to think about when we look at doctrine, I want you to think about like a, like, just like a train. At the front of a train, you have a locomotive. Locomotive, it pulls the, 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 the cars behind it, the boxcars, and then behind the boxcars is the caboose. The locomotive, I want you to think about it, that's the engine. It pulls the train. Without the engine, the train doesn't move. So when we look at God's word, God's word then is that locomotive, it's the truth. The truth from Scripture is where we start. Right behind that is the boxcar. That's going to symbolize the beliefs that are going to be based off of the scripture. The boxcar carries the stuff that the locomotive is there to transport. Without the locomotive, the boxcar, it sits on the track, doesn't move. So our beliefs, without the engine, without the truth of God's word, it's just there. It's stuck. It's inactive. There's, there's no traction. If there's no truth from Scripture to pull it, our beliefs will be based off of something. They're either going to be based off the, the, the last social media post that we read, the last blog that we read, the last podcast that we listened to, emotions, ups and downs, someone else's experiences. The boss car's movement, though, is directly influenced by the locomotives. So our beliefs should get their influence, movement, and power from the truth of Scripture. Now, the very, end of the, the very end of the train is what? The caboose. You see the caboose, you know the, the, that the train is done. There's a reason we want to have a work and knowledge of Scripture that leads to correct beliefs. We want to act and live accordingly. So the caboose symbolizes the behaviors that we are to have. And I know what you're all thinking. Eh, pray they're not all trains have cabooses. Yes, I know that. And not all Christians behave according to Scripture either. So truth, beliefs, hard part, behavior. Yeah, I know that's what it says in Scripture, but that but, that's disobedience. When we do this, we choose then how we want to behave. And when we choose how we want to behave, then we can affirm whatever belief that we want. And when we affirm any belief that we want, then we press upon Scripture exactly what we want it to say. That's why it's dangerous to start with behavior. We start with truth, not the caboose. Truth pulls the caboose, not the other way around. So let's begin with Scripture. Here's a locomotive. Matthew gives us a very telling piece of the story directly from the mouth of Jesus. Here's what he says about his church. This is Jesus, Matthew 16, 18. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Paul tells us how Jesus builds his church. Ephesians 5, 25. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So Jesus has a people that he's going to gather to himself. But the problem is... Their sin. He has to do something about their sin. He has to die as a sacrifice for their sins so they can be forgiven. So Jesus dies in the place of his church because he loves his church, i.e. his bride. And that is how the church is built. So we say church, who's included within this church? So when the 
word church is used in the Bible, like we said before, right above the doorpost. Remember, we walked, we walked right by it. What did it say? Ecclesia. It means assembly or gathering, and it refers to believers. In the Old Testament, when God gathers his people, the Hebrew equivalent is kahal. That's what's used. It also means assembly or gathered people and refers to those who believed in God. The Old Testament shows us a pattern. God will gather people to himself. He gives them a mission and commissions them to fulfill it. Genesis 12. Abraham's just walking along and God appears on the scene. Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. He gives him a promise that through him they're going to be a blessing to the nations. For through him would come the one that God had promised in Genesis 3.15. Remember that when Mitch walked us through that? There's going to be one that comes from you, woman, that's going to crush the head of, of the serpent. God's saying, I'm keeping my promise. Abraham is coming through you. We know that through Abraham would come Isaac, then Jacob. And the end of Genesis chronicles how Jacob's family ends up in Egypt. And all of a sudden, this little bitty brood of people, they begin to multiply. So when we hit Exodus, they're greater the number than even the Egyptians. In the book of Exodus, we learn how God's people, the Israelites, Israel, that's the covenant name for Jacob. So the Israelites, how they were held captive as slaves to Egypt. And what did God do? Moses, I want you to go down, stuttering it all. I'm going to send Aaron with you. I want you to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. Why? Because I'm gathering them to go into the wilderness so they can worship me. So later Moses, after they have, the people have been let go and they go through the Red Sea that's been ushered up in, you know, on either side of them and they go through and now they're going into the wilderness and Moses tells these rescued slaves that they are a holy nation who are to be the representatives to the world of the God who rescues and he saves and defeats all of the other so-called gods and is the only God that will be worthy of their worship and glory and praise. And then the rest of the Old Testament is the historical account of the Israelites. That's found in Leviticus, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles. And it's an, it's an interesting display of these people because they, it's, there's a roller coaster, if you will. They serve God. And then the next thing we read, they do what is evil in the sight of God. And then kings are raised up. And it says the kings do evil in the sight of God. And they cause the people to do evil. And then that king dies and the king is raised up and he does even worse than his predecessor. And then we have these prophetical books. The, 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 the major prophets, the minor prophets, they're contemporaries of what's going on. And they're speaking out. They're calling people to repentance. They're warning kings and priests and the people to stop worshiping false gods, to stop erecting these Asherah poles and return to the God who rescued them from Egypt. Remember, come back. And we read time and time and time again that God's not pleased with this empty ritual of sacrifice, circumcision, festival of observance because their hearts are far away from God. And this kind of false religion is what brings on God's wrath to them. And God makes his promise through the, through the pleas of the prophets that God wants a people 
who will have his law written on their hearts rather than just walking through the motions. So being a Jew by birth means absolutely nothing. Those who are the assembled are the ones that have faith in God and in his promise to send the Messiah to rescue them and save them. And then Paul, man, he puts two and two together for us. Romans 4, 1 through 3, 10 through 13, he's, he's talking about Abraham and he's like, he was righteous according to his faith. No other way. Verse 10, how was it counted to him, this righteousness? Was it before or after he was circumcised? It was not after, but before. Abraham had faith. It was recognized. And then he was circumcised to show exactly what he had done. The gathered people have always and will always be those that place their faith in the Son of God. Abraham and his descendants placed their faith in the Son of God by believing in God's promise that he would send him. Then Jesus comes, Christmas Day, promise fulfilled. And now we place our faith in the fulfilled promise of God, the Father. And that fulfilled promise is Jesus, the Son of God. And those who believe in Jesus are the church and has always been the true church. So if there was this pattern, this idea, God gathers the people to himself, mission, commissions them to fulfill it. When Jesus comes, he gives the idea form. And the New Testament paints the vision of the church. And they do so in incredible imagery. I mean, it shouldn't take us by surprise because God is like creative, right? So as he's inspiring these men to write his word, this is how they reference the new church. Romans 16, house church. Greet Prissa and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, verse 5. Greet also the church in their home. The church is referenced to an entire city. 1 Corinthians 1, Paul called by the will of God by an apostle, to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth. Corinth had one church. There's a reference to church that's in a region. Acts 9. To the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was built up. And then there's a reference to the church throughout the entire world. Ephesians 5, Christ loved the church and gave himself up. Church is referenced, house church, a church in a city, a church in a region, church throughout the entire world. And then we get these incredible metaphors for the church. Scripture compares the church to, in John, branches on a vine. In Romans, an olive tree. 1 Corinthians 3, a field of crops. 1 Corinthians 3, 9, a building. Matthew 13, a harvest. The church is viewed as a new temple in 1 Peter chapter 2. Not made, not made by human hands, but rather made up of Christians who are living stones, built up for Christ, who is the chief cornerstone. Further in 1 Peter, it's a new group of priests. We sing about this. Who are to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Hebrews 3, it's God's house with Jesus as our builder. 
1 Timothy, we are the pillar and bulwark of the truth. 1 Corinthians 12, we are the body of Christ. In Revelations, we are the bride of Christ. He is our groom. Ladies and the church, you're referred to as a brother. Men, you're referred to as a bride. Accept it. Beautiful. That's who we are. That's the who and the what of the church. And with such wide range of metaphors, there is no need just to focus on one, but rather appreciate them all. These metaphors can help us appreciate more of the richness of the privilege that God has given us by incorporating us into his church. So the Old Testament, remember, it's showing us a pattern. So we talk about how he's gathered the people to himself. But he's also given us a mission. And with that mission, there's a message. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly, brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. And this word is the good news that we preach to you. Ah, message. Good news. Euangelion. The gospel. That by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you can be forgiven of your sins and saved. So any church then that claims salvation through any other means other than the gospel of Jesus Christ is false and is not a true church. And we share the same grace story. Huh? Mitch, when did we do baptisms? A couple months ago? It's, there's a reason why we just don't get people up here and say, dunk, next, dunk, next. But, what, but what's the pattern here? You get up and we hear story. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, I believe God has just began. He tickles your heart and he says, that's the same story. We share a DNA together. That's beyond like my affiliation with a college or a high school or whatnot. It's like we have a brotherhood and sisterhood together. It's like, yes, I, that, I, that, 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 that happened to me too. That's exactly how God recalled me. He rescued me by his grace. Oh my, yes. You mean you felt that? Yes, so did I. It's the DNA that we have as we're covered by his blood. There's a, spe a specific mission that the church has been entrusted to as well. And we're gathered. There's a mission and that message in there. The message we have, the mission is to go on the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is Jesus talking. But the last thing he, that he says with, 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 with his disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Make disciples. Preach the gospel. Everyday gospel for the everyday life. And then we're commissioned and empowered to do it. Acts 1.8. Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So these gathered people 
with this message to go on mission, we're empowered to do what? Be witnesses of what? The life, ministry, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we are to be witnesses that all he said was true. And they were to be witnesses in kind of ever-increasing circles of demographic influence. And Jerusalem, these were the friends and family in their, in their neighborhoods and who they lived by, who they saw in their grocery stores and who they did work with. In Judea, these were acquaintances and other places that they have been. In Samaria, this was the forgotten and the marginalized. And then the end of the earth, all others. We're here today because of that. So let's get some definition then to the church for what we've read. So here's a summary statement, if you will. If we're looking at the locomotive and say, okay, Ryan, great thing said. Give me kind of what's, what's, the, what's the summary of it. Here it is. That the church is the gathered community of true believers for all time sent on a mission for God. The church. The gathered or assembled ones. A community of true believers. The commonality for all of us is our faith in Jesus and for all time. Those who are the true believers in the Old Testament were those who had faith in God's promised one who would come to rescue them and had their, his law written on their hearts. They did not keep the law to earn God's love, key here, but rather they knew of his love for him and they obeyed his law out of gratitude. Therefore, a relationship with God has always been through faith. We are the sent ones. And that's the church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against her. That's the locomotive. How's the tour so far? There's many more rooms I, I want to show you. So this next one off the corner there. This is the boxcar. This is the beliefs. So now we have the truth from God's scripture. What are the beliefs then that are going to be pulled by that? That we have of the church. So one, God is the one true promise keeper. You can map those promises all throughout. He's kept them. He never lies. His steadfast love endures forever. Another one, God the Father sends God the Son to take on flesh, live amongst us, and gather his people by building his church through his perfect life, sacrificial death, and victorious, and victorious resurrection. Another belief that we can have based on scripture. We are his church, a community that is a family made up of adopted sons and daughters of God. Another truth we can believe in. Jesus builds his church and continues to add to his church. And we've seen Acts, the Lord added to their number daily. He builds, he adds. Another belief we have. Based on the truth, we are to take the message of the gospel to the people where God has sent us so that they can, in turn, hear the gospel, respond, repent, believe, and be gathered into God's family as well. And another belief we can have based off the truth is there, were, there are ways we are to behave toward one another. We are to love one another, worship together. Minister to and nurture each other and grow one, one another up in the maturity of the faith. Those are beliefs. 
Those are probably others that we could tease out just from the truth, but those are the ones we'll stand on right now. Sorry. So now what are the behaviors? So if the truth, that locomotive, it's pulling the boxcar, toward the end we have this caboose, these are the behaviors that we are to have. So in, 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 in his book, The Rise of Christianity, Rodney Stark, he gives a unique perspective to an historical account. He's a sociologist. He takes a, soli- a sociologist perspective on the historical accounts of the early church from all the way up from Jesus' uh, resurrection to 350 A.D. Christianity at 350 A.D. was the dominant religion in the Roman world, having more than 50% of the population. Just wrap your mind around that. Forty-some-odd million, I believe, were in the, in the Roman world at that time, 350 A.D., and half were Christians. Not because Constantine made it the national religion, that's false news, but because the Christians lived differently. Listen to this. This is a quote. Christianity revitalized life in Greco-Roman cities by providing new norms and new kinds of social relationships able to cope with many urgent urban problems. To cities filled with homeless and impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachment. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. And to cities faced with epidemics, fires, and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services. No wonder the early Christian missionaries were so warmly received in Antioch. For what they brought was not simply an urban movement, but a new culture capable of making life in Greco-Roman cities more tolerable. Those are our brothers and sisters from, in Christ from long ago who knew the truth of Scripture, believed the truth of Scripture, and whose behavior followed suit. So think about in our own context. To have people turn to us, Christians. The people here in Katy who are moving in from all over the world. That from us they receive charity and hope and welcoming arms to these newcomers of every race and every color. If they get that from us, they're going to want to listen to and hear and understand the hope that we have in Jesus. So I want to think practically how we peel this out. So to do so, I thought, well, let's just look at what we do here at Redeemer. Our mission here at, at Redeemer, our true north, the thing that we want to stay on, focus on is this. To joyfully follow Jesus and help others do the same. To joyfully follow Jesus. That's, that is based in a belief that we have of the church. And help others do the same. So how do we, how do we, we who are to love each other because of the grace that we have in common from God, how do we partner together? How do we behave together so that we can achieve the mission? Well, we've stated it. We gather into worship. 
We engage in a discipleship group. We serve on a service team. We're on mission in our circles. 1 Peter 2.9. After he calls us a chosen race, here's what he says. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And this is who we are. A people for his own possession. Remember, he, 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 he gathers and then he, he what? Mission, what are we to do? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So what is the reason that we're chosen? So that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. We gather, we worship, we proclaim the excellencies, the outstanding qualities that are too numerous to count. And we sing songs about them and we hear that proclaim through God's word. And then we remind each other, we point each other to the cross, the excellencies of him. We gather to worship. Discipleship groups, somewhat the same. I would say create margin in your time of not just studying God's word, but knowing who each other are. Give each other the gospel before you give them advice. So if you're having a problem in your marriage or a problem with your family or things are going on hard, Brian said, hey, we come here, you know, I know you carry stuff. Don't leave your luggage at your, your baggage at the door, bring it in here with you. Why? Because we're going to proclaim the excellencies of him who can do something about that baggage. But I'm not going to give you advice. I want to point you to Jesus. Why? Because in him, in Jesus and what he's done, we are fully accepted. We're fully accepted by the Father through Jesus. If that is the case... Why should I worry if you accept me or not? I'm accepted by the creator of the universe. And because of that, I'm now freed to be vulnerable, vulnerable to you in my discipleship group. And as I am vulnerable to you, hopefully as you hear it, you're reminding me of the gospel. The reason why you can be vulnerable is because of what Jesus did for you. And now let's tease out the gospel and let's figure out how that can be applied in my situation. It's not just enough to know each other, it's more that we are known by each other. So let me ask you to do this right here. If you're not part of a discipleship group, before you leave today, put your name and your email and put, I want to be a part, help me. And we'll get back to you and get you connected. Serve. Everyone in this church, you need two things. You need a friend, you get that in your, in, in, in your discipleship group, and then you need a job. Your job is serving. We just learned that we're empowered by the Holy Spirit to do these things. We're given gifts. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you've got gifts to be employed here. There's some of the same gifts that you probably use in your workplace. Moms, you discover when you're with your kids at home. And God wants you to do this here as we build up the church. So if, if you're not serving here, in essence, you're robbing us of the opportunity to be blessed by God through your service. So again, if you're not connected to a service team, put your name. Say, I'm, I want to serve somewhere. Creative arts, first impressions, children's. Let's get you connected. Serve the body. Mission. Be thinking right now. 
who you are inviting to their Christmas Eve service. Remember we said 54% come once a year, grab them. Grab those that only come a few times a year. They're waiting for someone to ask him to come to church with them. But then you have your neighbor, right, who doesn't go ever. That's your circle. What about in your work? Can you not enter into conversations? What are you guys doing for Christmas? Man, we go to our Christmas Eve service. We'd love for you to come and enhance your time. From five to six, come be a part of it. Learn what, you know, sing some Christmas carols. Learn about what Christmas is all about. And then go have time with your family when you eat. Talk to your discipleship group. These are the people that I'm praying for right now to come with me to Christmas Eve. Pray together. Do something together. Mark on here. This is the name of my neighbor I'm wanting to invite to Christmas Eve. And let us pray for you as you're on mission with God. And if you see someone in your group and they're bringing a friend, be the church to that friend. Remember, our, if our strategy starts with we, we gather to worship and then we discipleship group and then we serve in a team and then we're on mission with Jesus, we're inviting them to come to this service right here. And when they come, we want to be welcoming them. Why? Because we have experienced the excellencies of him who called us from darkness and into light. So we want to be the ones who welcome them and bring them in here because we want them as a part of our family as well. Church, we're bringing in a new culture. And I think to do that, we do have to dig into the original vision that God had for his church. Our culture in Katy is so seeking love, acceptance, and hope. And my friends, family, we have that. And as a church, we have this amazing opportunity to actually be the church the way that God intended the church to be. And we can actually usher in and provide a new culture that is centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. That was our last room at the end. So may the truth of God's word shape our beliefs about the church. And may it shape our behavior as the church. Let's pray. God, you are a wonderful, good God. And the fact that you look down upon us and you've kept your promise millennium upon millennium. That what you started way back in Genesis, you're seeing to fruition right now. That you called us and then you send us. So Father, may the truth of your word, may it pierce into our hearts. May it inform how we believe truly and then May we be a church that behaves that way. Oh, God, help us. We love you, Lord. In your holy name of Jesus, we do pray. Amen.